Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7, which you can find on page 1026 in your pew Bibles. And today we'll be looking at uh, the account of Jesus raising the widow's son, which begins in verse 11. So this follows Jesus' healing of the centurion's servant, which we won't read. uh, But straight after that passage, we have in verse 11 through to verse 17, these words. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. Dear congregation, in uh, Tolkien's book, The Return of the King, the film version of which was actually filmed in New Zealand, of course, so there's that connection. Uh, In The Return of the King, Sam asks Gandalf a question that resonates with us who live in a broken and fallen world. He asks this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? There are things in our lives, aren't there, that we wish would come untrue. Certain hurts and griefs and memories and experiences that we wish would never happen or that we wish never happened in our lives. Certain things that make us drop our heads in discouragement and despair. And if there's one thing that we all wish would come untrue in this world, it's death. The last enemy. The harbinger of grief. The reminder of God's curse upon fallen mankind. Death. And in our passage this morning a passage that's unique to Luke's gospel. Jesus encounters death and the misery in its wake. The misery in its wake. And I mean literally awake, because there's a funeral going on. We find Jesus continuing his ministry uh, in Galilee, going from Capernaum, where he's healed the centurion's servant, And he moves on into a small town called Nain. And there in that insignificant town, 
Jesus encounters death. We see that human misery in the wake of death meets Jesus' compassion and power. Let me repeat that. Human misery in the wake of death meets Jesus' compassion and power. Let's consider uh, this passage in three movements. Jesus sees misery. Jesus brings restoration. And Jesus evokes awe. So firstly, Jesus sees misery. Our passage opens with a funeral. We're told that soon after miraculously healing the centurion's servant, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples followed him there together with a great crowd. So it's kind of bustling as they move into this town. And as they draw near to the gate complex of the town, they see that something's going on. They have to stop in their tracks. They have to hush a little. Stop the excited banter amongst themselves. They have to show respect because a man has died. And death has that effect, doesn't it? It has a, it has a sobering effect on us. Death has a certain gravitas to it. It makes us stop in our tracks and go silent. A man has died, and he's being carried out through the gate in a funeral procession, which means the deceased has been wrapped in cloth and is being carried out by bearers on a burial plank, which our passage calls a bier. And a crowd from the town is walking behind them in mourning, in support of those uh, who remain. And verse uh, verse 12 tells us that the man who had died was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So not only was she a widow who had lost her husband, but now she has lost her son as well, her only son. So we see that the stakes are actually higher than the previous account of the centurion's servant. In that case, uh, he was a servant, and he was only close to death. He was ill. But in this case, we have a son, an only son, who is already dead, wrapped in cloth, ready to be buried. Just, Just think with me about what this meant for the widow. Think about what this meant emotionally. Can we even begin to imagine the grief and the shock, the fear, the anguish, the misery of outliving your child? There's a novel from the 70s entitled An Orphan's Tale. And in it, the author wrote what have now become quite famous words. He wrote, A wife who loses a husband is called a widow. A husband who loses a wife is called a widower. A child who loses his parents is called an orphan. But there is no word for a parent who loses a child. That's how awful the loss is. 
Think also about what this meant for the widow economically and socially, just on a very practical level. The loss of her son would have meant that the widow no longer had any family to support her. No one left to provide for her. She's left vulnerable. No means of support, no means, no social status. She's now completely on her own because death has claimed her son. So here is this woman weighed down by misery in the wake of death. And she moves forward in this funeral procession. And as the mother of the deceased, she would have been at the front of the bier. And we're told in verse 13 that the Lord saw her. The Lord saw her. The nameless widow. The stranger. The nobody. He saw her. Such a simple phrase, isn't it? It's just part of the narration. His eyes looked at her, but isn't there a deeper meaning to that? Consider what it means. The Lord Jesus saw this widow in all her sorrow and despair. And he saw encapsulated in her sorrow the misery of this world. This world which lays whimpering under the wreckage of sin and under the tyranny of death. And we're told he had compassion on her. Jesus sees the misery of death and he brings restoration. And that's our second point. Jesus brings restoration. Reading verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, what's so striking about this encounter is that unlike the centurion, the widow has not come to Jesus asking for his help. She's in the middle of a funeral. It's over for her. And besides, did she even know who Jesus was? She doesn't pray for his help. She doesn't plead for his mercy. She doesn't ask for a miracle. She doesn't even exercise faith in this passage. She does nothing to move Jesus to do what he does next. Rather, Jesus is moved by his own compassion. He has a deep convulsion of pity for her in his inward parts. His heart goes out to her when he sees her misery. And brothers and sisters, this is our Lord. This here is his heart. His heart is wide, it's broad, it's gentle and kind and full of compassion. No sorrow is too heavy. No hurt is too great. For the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is in the flesh the same Lord who saw the affliction of his people in Egypt in the Exodus. The one who heard their cries, knew their sufferings, and set them free from bondage. He is the one in the flesh 
who is called merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He is this one. And so you and I can entrust our sorrows, our brokenheartedness, our grief and our misery to him. Just think about it. If Jesus will embrace this widow who didn't even approach him in faith, will he not much more embrace us, his people, who come to him in faith, who cry out to him for his mercy? Jesus is for us because of his compassion. And we see here, deeply moved by the widow's misery, Jesus says to her, do not weep. Now, there's a way of taking those words, do not weep, so that they sound like a cold and heartless rebuke, right? Just stop your weeping. Just stop it. Cut it out. But how they ought to be read, of course, is as an expression of Jesus' heart that is filled with compassion. A comforting call to cease weeping because of what he is about to do. Verse 14 tells us that he came up, touched the bear to stop the bearers, and they stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Now if he's speaking, he's alive. Jesus has just raised this man from the dead at his funeral. Jesus displays before his disciples, before the great crowd, and before the widow, he displays his power before them. The power of his word. Because he speaks to the young man with authority. He says, I say to you, arise. That simple command. And at his word, the dead man rises. The heart that stopped starts to beat again. The dead nerves start firing again. Death's claim on the young man is revoked And that with a word. Something supernatural has happened here. It's a great display of power and authority. Something that could never have been achieved by the eloquence of a mere preacher. By the skill of a doctor. Or even the love of a mother. Only God can bring the dead to life. And Jesus shows here that the power of God accompanies his own ministry. His word is different. It carries a unique authority. And so with a word, Jesus raises the young man and says in verse 15 that Jesus gave him to his mother. And so we see here Jesus bringing restoration, not only the restoration of life and breath, and vitality to the man himself, but also the restoration of a son to a mother. And all that that includes, 
the financial stability, the social security, joy to a mourning heart. Jesus restores the widowers as well. He responds to the human misery that he sees with a gracious and miraculous act of restoration. And remember, congregation, what Jesus does here is unasked for. It's grace through and through. And his dealings with us are exactly the same. Who of us came to Jesus first, asking for salvation? Who of us came to God asking for a son to be crucified for our sins? We didn't care. It's purely a gift of grace that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's grace through and through. He saw us. He had compassion on us. He took the initiative. Now, those who were well attuned to the Old Testament scriptures in this time would have noticed something as they followed this passage. Because Luke, the writer of this gospel, is being very intentional with how he crafts this account. There are a number of parallels between this passage that we've read and the Old Testament passage in 1 Kings chapter 17. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Kings Kings chapter 17 is the account of Elijah's encounter with the widow of Zarephath. Do you remember that account? The prophet Elijah goes to a town called Zarephath and he meets a poor widow gathering sticks. And she takes him in, she feeds him, she gives him a place to stay for some time and during his stay, the widow's son dies of an illness. So Elijah cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And he does this after going through kind of like a ritual of stretching himself over uh, the boy three times. And it says in 1 Kings 17, The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now, in the time of the writing of Luke's gospel, this account of Elijah was available in the Greek language. And what we see in our passage is that Luke echoes that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Listen to the parallels. He says, Jesus went to Naim, just as Elijah went to Zarephath. Jesus came to the gate of the town, and behold, just as Elijah came to the gate of the town, and behold, in both passages there's a widow who has a dead young son, And in both passages, the son is raised from the dead. And most significantly, Luke says, Jesus gave him to his mother, which is exactly the same phrase that's used in 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elijah took the revived child and gave him to his mother. So there's quite clearly an intentional comparison going on here. Jesus himself made this comparison back in chapter 4 of Luke 
when he likened himself to the prophet Elijah and he explicitly mentioned the widow in Zarephath. Now, the point of all this is not some academic research into the text. The point is this. Jesus is another Elijah. Jesus is another Elijah, but he's better. Elijah cried out to God in supplication. He had to engage in these ritual actions and so forth. And ultimately, the boy was raised by God as a response to Elijah's prayer. Think of the prophet Elisha, who in a similar incident laid his staff on the dead child's face and then lay over him before he could be raised. Now, but what does Jesus do? Does he offer supplication to God? Does he have to go through ritual actions? Does he have to stretch himself over the boy? No, all he needs to do is give a direct command. I say to you, arise, and he's risen. Do you see the comparison? Jesus' act of raising the dead is categorically different from the prophets before him. Jesus is unique. His word is adequate. He is the prophet greater than Elijah and Elisha, the one sent by God, the one who is God himself. And he is categorically different from the rest. In Jesus, then, we see that there is both compassion and power to the full extent. This is why you and I can entrust our lives to him. Just think about it with me. Compassion in the face of misery is a great thing. But what if that compassion is not accompanied by the power to do anything about it? Compassion without power is just sympathy. You get a sympathy card from Jesus. Uh, Let me know if there's anything I can do, Jesus. I hope things get better for you soon, Jesus. On the flip side, what about immeasurable power? Life-resurrecting power without an accompanying compassion. A Jesus who's able to intervene but who doesn't have the time to spare for the nameless widow, for the grieving parent, for the sleepless mother, the depressed teenager, the addicted nobody. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, there is both power and compassion. He is the lion and the lamb. He holds the keys of death and Hades. And at the same time, he holds up the chin of the downcast. Not only is he willing to come to our aid, but he is also able. And not only is he able, but he's also willing. This is our Savior. And his compassion joins Compassion joins hands with his power to bring about restoration. And this finally evokes 
a response of awe. And this is our final point. Jesus evokes awe. Verse 16 tells us that the crowd was seized with an awe-filled fear. After all, a dead man has come back to life. The mourning and the grief has come to an abrupt end. The funeral director is scrambling through his files to check the cancellation policy, right? This has just come out of nowhere. And everyone is awestruck. And it says, they praised and glorified God, saying two things. Firstly, a great prophet has arisen among us. And secondly, God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus spreads throughout the region. Let's think about, briefly, the first of those two things they say. A great prophet has arisen among us. Just as the widow of Zarephath responded to the miracle of Elijah by saying, Now I know you are a man of God. So too the people respond to Jesus by recognizing that God has acted in Jesus, his great prophet, a man sent from God. Now, question arises, did they see, though, that Jesus was the prophet, the one who was more than a prophet, God in the flesh, the one to whom every other prophet was pointing? Probably not at this point. Probably not. They didn't fully understand who it is they're dealing with. But nevertheless, they recognize that there is something special and unique about this Jesus. And then secondly, they say, God has visited his people. Now, this language of visiting, it can be kind of confusing because when you visit, you don't stay for long, right? You kind of drop by. Does this mean God has popped by for his people? No, this is a loaded term in the Old Testament, which points to God's gracious intervention for the good of his people. I mentioned earlier that the Lord heard the cries of his people in Egypt. Well, listen to Exodus chapter 431. It says, When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So God saving them from Egypt was an act of visitation. His presence and his grace visited them. Ruth Chapter 1, verse 6, speaks of God providing food in Bethlehem and says, The Lord has visited his people. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah picks up on this in his song. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Speaking of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, what the crowd's chorus of praise here tells us is that Jesus Christ is the one in whom God has visited this world. This world. This world in which child dies before parent. 
where country invades country. This world in which there is miscarriage, there are strokes, degenerative diseases, overdoses. This world in which sin tears marriages and families and friendships apart and people and nations turn on each other in anger and in spite. This world has been visited by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He has not abandoned this world, but has had compassion upon it. In Jesus, then, God is accomplishing his long-awaited redemption since the Old Testament. It's been leading to Jesus all along, hasn't it? The one who was the consolation of Israel and the horn of salvation. All that to say, Jesus does not interrupt, but actually fulfills God's plan for Israel and all his people from long ago. It's all about Jesus. And in him, we have the hope of restoration. In Jesus, death is going to be, going to be swallowed up in victory. And this miracle, the raising of the widow's son, is but a small preview of that future victory. Because here's a question for you all, congregation. The widow's son was raised from the dead, but was it a resurrection? Was this here a resurrection? The answer is no, because the son would die again. This was a resuscitation. It was a miraculous act. Praise God, but it was not a resurrection. But it does assure us that Jesus' compassion and power, when it meets misery, brings life, brings joy, brings the end of grief and misery. It gives us, this miracle gives us certainty that God is at work in this world and in our lives. And that when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness in the future, Jesus will bring about a permanent, glorious resurrection and restoration. And he'll do this, he'll achieve this by going to Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets where he will be put to death on the cross for our sins. We remember that on Good Friday. But he will also rise again in power on the third day, never to die again. So congregation, is everything sad going to come untrue? According to Jesus, yes. When human misery meets his compassion and his power, there is healing and restoration and joy. When our sin and misery and brokenness meets Jesus and his compassion and power, there too is healing and restoration and joy, but not yet in its fullness. We feel that. But that healing restoration has begun for sure. On that day, each of us will be raised not back to life in the same broken world like the widow's son was, only to die again, but to life 
in the glorious kingdom of God, where death and misery will reign no more. And so may we too lift up a chorus of praise to the God who has visited us in Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. Shall we pray, congregation? Gracious God, we praise you for the one who is greater than Elijah, the one who is full of compassion and power, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you have visited your people. We pray that you would deepen our love for him, that you would strengthen our faith in him, and that you would fill us with the hope of that final resurrection when all things will be restored and finally made right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.